are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, good morning, listeners. Um, uh, I hope you're having a great Monday morning and that you guys are... Um, whatever it is that you find yourself doing, that you're doing it to the, for the Lord and with all of the strength that he gives you through grace to be able to achieve what he has you doing today. And so if you are sitting down listening to this, welcome. If this is the first time you've been joining us, then welcome as we're going through the book of Luke. We've got a, um, a doozy today, but this is probably one of the most fundamental concepts to the gospel that you will ever here in, in the chapter Luke 14. Um, this is one, as I was even talking about with my kids this morning as we were going through Acts 26, uh, of just how much of the gospel really is not being presented today even from the pulpit and from the church. Um, it's a one-sided gospel. It talks a lot about the love of God, the forgiveness of God. And while those things are definitely true... Concepts such as repentance, righteousness, judgment, those are kind of missing in a lot of presentations of the gospel. And so the gospel message is not one of just um, ask Jesus into your heart. In fact, you won't find that concept anywhere in scripture. That was a man-made concept that sounds great, but is not in scripture. Um, You won't find anywhere in the New Testament uh, where it's like, hey, Ask Jesus into your heart. Um, Jesus gives you a new heart when you put him on the throne of your life. That's a totally different thing. And so some of it might deal with semantics, but the reality is is that there are aspects of the gospel message to lead people unto Christ and to salvation that are missing. And this chapter contains one of the most fundamental keys that unlocks the power of the gospel unto a human soul. So we're going to get to that. Uh, we got a few little things we got to talk about first before we get to it. But once we get to verse 15, from there on, it's going to be very jam-packed, full of um, truths that maybe you've never heard of. Um, and I encourage you to stay with us until the end. All right, so verse 1, chapter 14. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler, which is where all this is going to be taking place. Okay, So this... Um, where, where he's going to go dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. That is the setting of everything in chapter 14. So just keep that in your mindset, that he's going to be at this place where there's a bunch of Pharisees, there's a bunch of lawyers, and there's a bunch of high prestigious people that have been invited to this dinner to kind of hear what Jesus has to say. Um, and so listen carefully. He says, They were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, 
And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Remember, this is on a Sabbath day, a Friday night to a Saturday night. Um, so this is probably at some point Saturday, um, you know, lunchtime, maybe even getting closer to dinner time. And they are sitting down, sitting down um, on this Sabbath day. And here's this guy that's had, that's got dropsy. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees as he did even in chapter 13, I think it was 14 and 15, where he addresses this exact same thing, almost a, a verbatim teaching that he's doing. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Did you learn your lesson from the previous time whenever I said these exact same words to you about this woman who has had this disabling spirit? And even going back into it, let me just read it in 13, 14 and 15. He says, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Speaking to the woman, he says, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. He says, look, woman, you're wrong for coming to him to be healed on the Sabbath. That would be making somebody work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says this, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? He says, look, on the Sabbath day, you're going to do something that you deem as work, but it's justifiable because it's actually sparing the life of a a beast of burden. And he says, and should I not release this woman who is created by God from the burden that she's carried her, her whole life from this disabling spirit, even though it's on a Sabbath? I mean, which is more important, really, your ox or this woman? So he gives them this lesson, and then right now he's about to say the exact same thing. He goes on, he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away, and he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So he goes on in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, remember, he's been invited by this ruler of the Pharisees, this leader amongst them, and the lawyers, the Pharisees, and these high prestigious people are there. And they've all been invited, and now he's looking around watching them, and he sees that they're all choosing the places of honor. So he tells them this parable. And I'm not going to talk too much more about the Sabbath concept just because I did address that in chapter 13 a little bit more. Um, So I'm just going to keep going. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, is Jesus saying that the places of honor are evil and wicked and that we should never ever sit in those places? No, he's not because Jesus sits in a place of honor at the right hand of the Father. God sits in a place of honor, right? It's not the the place of honor that's the question. It's choosing it for yourself. And this has many faces to it. This could be at a, at a party, you wanting to try to fight over who's going to have the place of honor, kind of like the, the um, disciples did for Jesus when he gets done telling them, hey guys, I'm going to die three days later, be raised. And then James and John with their mom, they come to him and they said, hey, 
Grant it for us to sit at your right hand, the place of honor. And Jesus is like, well, hold up a second, guys. That is not for you to decide what the Father is going to put in places of honor. You, you need to simply just finish your mission. And it's an interesting concept because we, we have the same concept even when it tum- comes to, as I talked about in chapter 12 in part 2, well, part 1 and part 2, um, of how you live your life. Do you live it in such a way where you're spending your money on yourself and exalting yourself in this life? Are you lifting yourself up and saying, hey, I want to make sure I have my best life now. I want to make sure that I get mine in this life. I want to make sure that I get what's what I deserve. I mean, I'm making this money and I should have this fancy house and this fancy car and all this various stuff that's living in self-indulgence and luxury. I should sit in that place of honor. What did Jesus say? He said, no, 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 no. Instead, choose to take the lowest seat in this life so that one day when you stand before him, He'll say, friend, move up higher. And you'll begin to take a place of honor in heaven. Don't store up treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy, thief can break into steel. He says, rather store up treasure in heaven. Let that be the place in which you get exalted because if you choose the lowest place here on earth, I guarantee you God will exalt you in the next life when we stand before him for all of eternity. And that's kind of his premise that he's talking about here. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. He says this, Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Did did you see the correlation in the picture that's there? Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Jesus, though he was um, equal to God, he emptied himself. And he came down being born into this world just like us in every respect. And he humbled himself to be a servant to all at the sacrifice of himself, even unto a cross, which was considered a curse, as Deuteronomy puts it. And because he humbled himself, God highly exalted him. And in the same way, guys, we have that choice in this life. Which are you going to choose? To exalt yourself? To make life about you? To make life about your reputation, your um, your wants and ambitions and desires in life? And man, you're going to have to just have your best life now. You're going to get what you want and what you think you deserve. And instead... He says, I want you to choose the lowest seat. And if God decides to to move you up, maybe he wants to make you an elder. You don't necessarily choose it for yourself, but God says, look, I've got a purpose for you and you're going to be an elder. That is a place that is worthy of double honor for those who labor well in that, in teaching and preaching. Maybe God's going to put you in a place. I don't think God's ever going to put you in a place of of, um, self-indulgence and luxury because that's outside the imagery of Jesus Christ, whom we're supposed to imitate. 
But I do think that God will appoint people to places of honor within the church or places of honor in which he says, I have a purpose for you. But we just shouldn't choose it for ourselves. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at it in this passage. And so you look at this, you know, I've got a a verse pulled up actually in Proverbs 29, 23, that says this, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. He says, look guys, if you live your life in humility, you will have the grace of God and everything that you need for the life of godliness to live it out in a way that pleases him. This is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5. When he says this in verse 6, Well, let me, there's a therefore, so let me back up into verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Outdo one another, as Romans 12 says, in showing honor. He says, look, I I want you to place other people higher up on the pedestal than you. You should never be higher. It should never, your, your time means more to you and how you spend it than it does and how you can spend it to serve other people. The money that you get should be more inclined to be for other people rather than yourself, you know. And that lesson is never more true than it is as being a father. I've got ten kids and a wife whom I provide for. And I go out there and I work. And that money that I make, you know how much I typically see of that for myself? Very little of it. Most of the money that I make, that I go out and I, and I earn, right, with my own two hands goes towards other people. And not only that, it goes towards the church. It goes towards people in the church. It goes towards the work of the church. There's things in which I make money. And yes, we have needs and God meets those needs. and, And I'm not saying that you have to use every dime that you make on other people. But what I am stating is that, yes, God knows you have needs. And he says, take care of those needs. But never let those needs become wants. Where you are more inclined to take care of your wants rather than somebody else's needs. God's needs, first and foremost. And so the point is, is that, guys, um, as he goes on to say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The concept is, as you walk in humility, counting others more significant than yourself, which was the mind of Christ. Live your life in such a manner, and one day, whether it be on this life or in the next, He will exalt you. And that's what we live for, and that's what we keep our aim as. And so that is kind of a foundational thing um, within the gospel message, but we're about to get into the cost of um, following Jesus, of what that actually entails and looks like. So now he goes into verse 12 after giving this one about humility, about counting others more significant, taking the lowest place, choosing to take the lowest place. He says, he said also to the man who had invited him. So now to the ruler of the Pharisees, now to this, the head honcho at the party. He says this, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. And he's saying, look, Don't invite people who just have this prestige among them, this reputation, this high reputation, and and this class system in which you guys constantly just hang out with all the rich. So that's not who you need to invite, lest they repay you, and you guys just keep going back and forth and being like, oh, how blessed we are. Let's just hang out with one another and just talk about how good life is and how blessed we are, and let's not associate with the lowly. 
is creating this caste system that's that's extremely popular, like over in India. He says, that's, that's not what I want you to do. He says this, instead, he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He says, you know, live your life in such a way where you are, it's, it's better to give than to receive, right? As Jesus says in Acts, it's better for you to be a sacrifice than you to be sacrificed for. It's better for you to be spent and be poured out as a drink offering rather than you to fill your own cup. It's, just the, it's the methodology of heaven. It's the methodology of a Christian because that's exactly what Christ did for us. So we do that for others. And he says, I don't want you to go out there and just do it for people that can repay you. And you can constantly have your cup being filled. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to go out there and I want you to pour yourself out as a drink offering on the, on this, uh, how does Paul word it? The sacrificial altar of others. And that's what he talked about in is 2 Timothy 4. I think it's in chapter 4, verse 6. Let me turn to it real quick and see. What he says, because the premise is this is how Paul lived his life, because it's how Jesus lived his life. They were the example. Somehow or another in this American mindset, we've gotten into where it can be about us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whatever makes you happy and fills up your cup, man, you have the, the right to go after that. And Jesus actually says the opposite. He says, no, 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 you don't have that right. The right that you have is to imitate me. 1 John 2, 6 says, Anyone who says they abide in him ought to walk in the same manner which he walked. Have this mind among you, which was Christ Jesus, that he counted others more significant than himself, even unto a death on a cross. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He says, I, I, I'm being poured out as a drink offering constantly for other people. Not for myself, but for other people. And so Jesus is simply stating this, this same concept. And he goes on and he says in verse 15, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And and undoubtedly saying this with a Jewish perspective, with a haughtiness and a pride that the Jews were God's people, that the Jews um, were going to be the ones who ate bread in the kingdom of God. They get to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe he didn't hear what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 13. But undoubtedly from a Jewish perspective, because Jesus, knowing this guy's heart, knowing what he was probably intending, goes on to give an analogy that the Jews will not be in. Unless they come through him. But that the Gentiles are going to be compelled to come into the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I, I've bought a field. I must go out and see to it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. What is Jesus trying to say here? He's trying to tell, uh, give a message to the Jews of saying, look, I, I've come and I've been saying that it's ready. A time has come and it's ready and you guys all made excuses. So I'm going to go to the Gentiles because I want a large family. I want my household to be big. I want as many kids as I can get. That's the heart of God. Is that your heart? Or are you good with your 1.2, which is what the average American family has today, is 1.2 kids. Last I knew. Is your heart for kids? Because if you share the heart of God, if you really want His heart to be your heart, then God wants a large family. So we should want a lot of kids. And that might look different for, it, for various people, But how dare we ever try to take control from the hand of God and say, I'm good with only this. Don't give me any more. But that's a side note. In this concept, he's talking about how people make excuses even though they've been invited, which again is an anti-Calvinistic message because if you were invited, then obviously if God wanted you there, you'd be there. But there's free will in man, which means that God can invite you, but you might be able to tell him no. You might be able to reject that invitation and start making excuses and say, God, I, I, I've got to go tend to all my possessions. I've got so much that I've got on my plate. I mean, I, I got this and I got that. I got that. I'm sorry. I just can't follow you the way that you want me to follow you in Christ. But, but God, I, I got a job. I mean, I got to make sure that I'm clocking in my 50, 60 hours a week. I just can't be a part of of the church the way that you want me to be. I I just can't really follow you the way that you deem for me to follow you in your word. I've got a a job that's got to pay for all these possessions that I've got. You begin to make excuses. And then this last one, all of these things can be idols in life. And they're not necessarily even bad. A job is not necessarily bad. A wife is not necessarily bad. But here he says, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. And isn't it fascinating that all the others guy, all the others said, please have me excused, but the one who says I've married a wife doesn't? He's the only one who didn't say, please have me excused. He simply just said, I can't come. I married a wife. I've got duties to her. I've got to make sure that she's taken care of. I've got to make sure that, that I'm, I'm loving her. And you'll even use scriptures like, I've got to love her as Christ loves the church. I mean, that's my command. I've got to do that. And Jesus says... He ain't worthy to follow after me. If that's your mentality, if those things are idols in your life in which you can't follow me because you think that those things take precedence over the mission that I've given to you to testify to the gospel of the grace of God that is revealed through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, the risen Savior, the one who conquered death and now goes and gives his spirit to those who submit their lives to him as Lord so that they might live as ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. You think that your job and your possessions and your family needs to be your first ministry? Well, let me just tell you, you're missing the boat. Are they a ministry? Absolutely. Are they your first priority? No. You want me to prove it to you? 
Let's look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, going through 35, in verse 29 through 35. Here's what he says. Let's see if, it get, if Paul can get any more clear as to what even Jesus is trying to teach to his, his um, guests, if you will, at this dinner banquet. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, this is what Paul says. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short from now on. So from this point forward, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> why don't we ever talk about this verse today? Why don't we ever bring this one up? It's because it's one that we don't want to follow, so we make excuses. Let me just tell you, people who make excuses as to why they can't follow Jesus will in the end not be worthy to taste anything from that banquet. Jesus isn't looking for pretenders. He's not looking for people who only know the right things to say. He's looking for people who are doers and who are willing to set aside, if needs be, good things in life to chase after the best. Let me keep going on this one because Paul, essentially what he's saying is not that you don't have a job to minister to your wife or to show her honor. As 1 Peter 3, 7 even says that we have the commission as husbands to honor our wives as the weaker vessels for the sake of our prayers. Meaning that if you're not honoring her and showing her value, then he says, then your prayers are hindered. But your honor for your wife should never, it should never compromise the honor that you have for Christ. And the mission that we have. And that's what Paul's trying to state here. He says, for the present form of this world is passing away towards the end of 31. Then he goes into 32 and he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Did you just catch that he called your desire to please your wife as a worldly thing? It's not heavenly. It's worldly. This is, I'm just reading from what the text says. You can receive it or not. That's totally up to you. But if you choose to reject this, you're rejecting the word of God because all I'm doing is reading it. Your desire to please your wife is actually a worldly thing. And he goes on, he says the same thing about a wife unto her husband. It is a worldly thing because it is a temporal thing. You will not be married in heaven to your spouse because you'll be married to the lamb. He goes on in verse 34, it says, and his interests are divided. Okay. The concept that he's saying here is that when you get married, it's not that, woe is me, I'm just going to have this lot in life, I've just got these divided interests. It is what it is. He says, no, 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 no. You're going to be tempted to be divided. He's not giving you license to be divided. He says, no, 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 no. You're going to be tempted to be divided if you marry. That's why he says, I would spare you that. He says, if you married, you haven't done anything wrong. But you better make sure that in your marriage, Christ is still first and foremost, no matter what it costs. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. This is what he says in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Apertus pastos is the Greek word for undivided. It means without um, solicitude or distraction. Solicitude is a word that means care or concern for someone or something. He says, I want your love and your devotion to be solely unto God and not divided at all in purpose for Him. 
He says, I don't want you to lose the balance that you're supposed to have. And Christ is always supposed to be at the head. And it's always supposed to be weighing in his favor. It's not bad to want to care for your wife. But when that care and service to your wife gets in the way of following Jesus, then it is an idol in your life and another golden calf being forged in your life. And that's what Jesus is trying to state here. He is not in the game of accepting excuses. He's not in the game of looking at having to have a rival for devotion and love. It's him as first and foremost, or it's nothing. Listen to what he goes on to say. If you don't believe me, I'm still, I'm just reading the text, I'm quoting scriptures, I'm bringing these things into context for you. And it might be new for you. And I've had men who have literally left our fellowship because of this teaching. Because they say, no, 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 no. My wife is my first ministry. My wife, that comes first, even above the church. Well, let me just tell you, the husband and the wife is a picture of something much, much bigger and grander and greater. And that is the church and Jesus Christ and the relationship we have. In fact, you look in Second Corinthians 8.23, it says that the church is the glory of Christ. I want you just to think about that. The church is the beloved. The church. In fact, let me just turn to this real quick. You know, there's um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in a very um, oftentimes misunderstood and misdiagnosed passage and thus mistaught. In chapter 5, verse 8, he's talking about the concept of widows of an earthly family and widows for the church family. Okay? He said, he, there's only two things that he's talking about is the church taking care of widows who are truly widows and then widows who have earthly family to take care of them. It's the two types of family that are referenced in this passage. Okay. And verse eight, here's what he says. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, oftentimes people talk about this, about your extended family and your immediate family. But that's not exactly what the wording suggests on here when you take it back to the Greek. Because this word for household, when he says, if anyone does not provide for his household, that is a word that is used there only three times in scripture. One of them being here. Oikios is the Greek word. The only time that this word is used in scripture is in Galatians 6.10. And in Ephesians 2.19 and in this passage. And in the other two, it is both referencing the household of God. And what oikeos means is that which is, to, is um, united by blood. But he's not talking about an earthly blood. He's talking about a heavenly blood, the blood of Christ. So essentially what this passage is stating is you have a job to take care of your earthly family, your relatives. The word in the Greek suggests those who belong to your household. Okay? But if you don't take care of the church, God's beloved, the bride of Christ, if you don't take care of her, then you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Jesus isn't saying that you have to take care of your earthly family and if you don't, then you're worse than an unbeliever. He says, no, 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 no. If you deny that which is spiritually the family of God, then you have denied what the faith is all about. And that is taking care of the body of Christ, which is his church. Honoring the body of Christ above all. 
Because God sent that body to die for you. In the same way as, you know, you look in Acts whenever Jesus appears to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus was long dead and gone. Jesus no longer walked amongst the people. So how was Saul persecuting Jesus? It was by attacking his body. Because as 1 Corinthians um, 8, I believe it's 11 and 12 says that when you sin against a brother, you sin against Christ himself. Guys, this is a serious thing. Because I've had men who have left the fellowship because of this concept. They wanted to honor their wives and live for their wives and please their wives even if it meant dropping the cross in service to Christ. And let me just tell you, Every man who has done that, that has been a part of, of my fellowships here that I've led and I've presided over and I've taught and I've tried to lead in, in the way that is everlasting and lead into all truth. Every man who has chosen to walk away because of their wife, they got worse. They're not following hard after Christ. One guy has gotten a divorce since then. Because let me just tell you, if you're not going to honor Christ, then he is not going to honor you. Just in the same way that it says in the text that if we deny him before men, he'll deny us before the Father. You know who actually says that? Jesus says that in the Gospels, but then Paul also tells Timothy that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says if we deny him, he will deny us. The only people that's being referenced there is Paul and Timothy. So that's New Covenant and that's even Christians. And the same way, if we're not going to honor him above all, then he will not honor us before all. Same way as choose the places that are the lowest of counting others more significant, primarily Christ. Listen to what he goes on to say. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, so still in the hearing of everybody in this dining you know, setting, if anyone comes to me and listen very close, Christian, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did you you hear that? Because this is the bedrock of salvation. Jesus has already talked about this in Luke 9, 23, when he says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow after me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He's just giving the same basic gospel presentation here of the cost of discipleship, of following Jesus. You want to follow him, then he has got to be preeminent. He has got to hold first place in every category. And it might cost you the service to your wife. I'll give you an example that I've used before in C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd, when he was 52 years old, decided that he felt the calling of God on his life to go to Africa with a guy named Alfred. And these guys were going to go, and he was not in very good health, and so the mission board told him that they weren't going to support him to go because they thought he would die. 
And he told his wife about it, and his wife said, nope, I'm not going to go. I'm done. I don't want to, I don't want to do mission work. You're going to die. You know, I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but essentially she said, no, she wasn't going to go. His own mom was trying to say, why are you breaking my heart by trying to go? You're going to die if you go. You're not in good health. You can't go. And CT immediately, this verse pops in his head, according to his own writings, his own journal, this verse popped in his head. And he said, I've got to do the work of God. And I want you to come with me. But if you're not willing to come, then I have to go. And so he goes. And the man, um, him and Alfred, started a missionary organization there. The words, they almost reached the entire continent for the gospel in 20 years. The guy lived another 20 years when most people said he wouldn't last a year. And the coolest thing about all that is that several days, maybe even it, was, it might have been a couple of weeks into his voyage of going over to Africa, his wife was back in the England area. And she was praying, and to, if, to my recollection, she was kind of venting in her prayer. And God hit her with such a conviction of the, the guilt that she had of being in the wrong she was wrong for not going with him. She was wrong for trying to get him to stop. He hit her with such a conviction that she broke and she began to weep. And she began to repent. Because she realized that she was trying to stay her husband from doing the work of God. The very thing that God commissions men to do is to do his work. Not your work, but his. And I believe that she... I mean, traveling back in the late 1800s, early 1900s was way different than it is today. You can just pop on a plane. There, you have to travel a month and a half on voyage in a boat just to be able to get to Africa. And that might cost you your life. Let alone having to get to Africa in an uncivilized territory and much of it, continent, and having to travel. It took Alfred and, and CT a month to get to inland Africa. Sleeping oftentimes just feet away from crocodiles at night. In small little tents. And so instead of going to go be with her husband, she became his strongest supporter of recruiting missionaries to go over to go help him. So she stayed in England while he was in Africa. And she went church after church after church and she would preach about what Alfred and what her husband CT were doing. And she would recruit people to send over there. That was a heavenly couple. Working together, even though they weren't physically there, they had a mind for heaven. And this is what he's talking about, guys. This is the cost of following him. We can't make excuses and keep saying, you know, oh, well, God would want me to take care of my wife because, you know, he wants me to love her like Christ loved the church. Well, let me just say, he doesn't say loves the church. He says, as Christ loved the church. There's an example that he's trying to point us back to. And it was something in the past. Not something he was doing in the moment, but something in the past. As Christ loved the church. What did he do for the church? How did he love her in such a way? I'm going to show you in John chapter 17. Because it wasn't about serving her. It wasn't about giving her everything she wanted. Because he doesn't give me everything I want in my flesh. He gives me everything I need in my spirit. Listen to what he says in John 17. Because this is the truth behind what he says. Sanctify them in the truth. This is in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What is Peter's, or what is Jesus saying here to his apostles as he prays to the Father? 
and says, God, this is my prayer for them. I want them to be sanctified in truth. And he says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead them by example. I'm going to consecrate myself unto holy, devoted service to you, Father, so that they would have the footsteps of righteousness and be led by my example to get to you. That's the example that he says to love them is to devote yourself to service unto God. Consecrate yourself so that your footsteps will do exactly what Christ's footsteps did for us, leading us to the footsteps of or to the throne of God. He's not saying, I want you to go out there and buy them that nice fancy car to show them how much you love them. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, I want you to provide for them that nice house and give them all the best clothes. And I want you to give them just a life and just treat them like they're just, you know, so, so precious. That's not what he's talking about at all. He says, the way that you're going to love her as Christ loved the church is to serve God. And provide the footsteps of righteousness for her to follow. Just as Jesus did for us, as Hebrews 12, 1-2 says. And as, even as a prophecy in Psalm 85, verse 13, he says, Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. That is what Ephesians 5 means when it says, To love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Meaning that he gave himself on that cross. And he lived for those three years a a, a life that shows us what it looks like to follow God. And he gave us the means and the example to do as he did. It's to propel your wife to look like Jesus. In the same way that that God used Christ to propel us as the church to look like Him. So in this passage, He says, if your wife, your family, your father, your mother, your earthly family, your earthly blood, if that is equal to or greater in devotion than your commitment to me, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Let me ask you, did you count this cost before you, you, um, quote unquote, asked Jesus into your heart? Did anybody present you with this cost of saying it's, it's all or nothing? Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's not in the, in, the, in the game of trying to compete for your devotion and your allegiance. He says, otherwise when he has laid a foundation is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What, what is he saying? He says, look, you don't want to get into following Jesus and not be able to finish it. You better count the cost. And maybe this is your first time of ever hearing this. Maybe you've been fed a whole bunch of fluff and, and somebody's given you that nice, warm, fuzzy gospel that God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And as Leonard Ravenel puts it, sloppy evangelism. And they never told you that there was a cost 
They never told you that there was thorns on that rose stem. That you were going to have to climb the ladder on and it's going to be hard and you're going to suffer and its way is going to be difficult and it might cost you. And it might cost you things sometimes that would be very difficult for you to bear. But it's the only way to get to the petals of the rose. That's what he says in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And summarizing all of what he just said, oftentimes the most damaging idols and the ones that are the most, um, the greatest temptation for us are the ones that mean the most. And, all, and, and oftentimes they're not bad things. Having a job is not a bad thing. Having a wife is not a bad thing. Having kids is not a bad thing. But if they become equal to or greater than your devotion and your love and your allegiance to Christ and the mission that he has given us, even in John seventeen sixteen, right before what I quote, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I send them. In the same manner that Jesus was sent, that's how he's sending us. Our mission is to serve him, to honor him, to love him, to testify to the gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to exhaust ourselves for that purpose and not just to simply take care of our families. And yet, I see most men, at least in America, exhausting themselves for their family. And Jesus is left. And Jesus says, if that's you, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't renounce all that you have, you can't be my disciple. This is the the building block of discipleship. And if this is not present in your message and you're listening to this and you're not teaching this, man, you better start teaching it. If you've listened to messages before and this was never part of it and you received a gospel that's not the one true gospel, man, as Paul puts it, you put up with it readily enough. It's time to believe and proclaim the gospel. In full. And not just part of it. He goes on. He says salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste. How shall saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil. Or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who, has, he who has ears to hear. Let him hear. I believe this is a direct inference. To apostasy. Jesus is warning people. That if you start wanting to follow him. You start getting into this. But then that way just gets a little bit too hard. That cost gets a little bit too great. Because you didn't really count it. In the beginning. You just flippantly got into it. And been like. Oh yeah. I want my get out of jail free card. And you don't finish this race, you don't keep the faith, you don't fight the good fight, and you lay down that cross and you just say, I'm going to take it easy, as he talks in Luke 12. It's like, I'm, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to do my thing. He says, if, if you lost that which made you salty, when he says, have salt in yourselves, if you lost that which made you salty, and you're to go no good for anything anymore. That's where Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 comes in. It's called apostasy. And it's a total desertion of the faith that you once held. And Satan is after you. And that's what he wants from you is your faith. You can't let him take it. Count the cost. Live the life. Keep the faith. Because that is what it's all about. Fun fact, um, at least according to my research on this one, I once had somebody come and tell me that it's impossible for salt to lose its flavor. 
that it's actually an impossibility. So I did some research on it. What actually I found on there is that there are certain salts that are indigenous more so to the American area that um, can't lose its flavor. But they're, the salt that's actually indigenous to the area in which Jesus was in at this time can. Salt can lose its flavor. And the one that Jesus is referencing is the one that can lose its flavor because he just said salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, meaning that it can lose its flavor, it can lose its taste. That which makes it salty, it can lose. And if it does, it is no good for anything anymore but to be gathered and burned. What's interesting is that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 8 talks on. You should go read it. The reality is, guys, don't make excuses as to why you can't follow Jesus the way that he commands. I'm so tired of hearing all the defeated gospel that's out there. If I'm just a sinner and I'm just always going to be a sinner and I'll never be able to be like Jesus. Oh, I can never homeschool my kids or I can never have that many kids. I just couldn't do it. I'd go insane. I could never do this. I could never do that. Everything's excuse after excuse after excuse. Let me just tell you, Jesus is not in the business of understanding excuses. He's given us the means to have results and we need to go live it and do it. So this is a, a profound chapter that cannot go unnoticed. And I hope that you will take this to heart, that you'll take it deeper into the word to see if these things are true that I've said. And if you find, as I believe that you will, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see what the spirit is saying to the churches, if you believe and see that these things are true, then I would encourage you to begin sharing this message. Get it out to people because there's a lot of people who need to hear it. Y'all be blessed.